waiting hurts. I suppose not all waiting hurts. Sometimes waiting is just sort of annoying, right? If you're waiting in line somewhere, waiting for it to warm up. But other times waiting hurts. Some of you have found yourselves waiting for the the kidney stone to pass. Sometimes the, the hurt is physical. Other times it's more emotional, even spiritual, when you're waiting to meet the right person. Waiting to get pregnant. Waiting to see if you'll stay pregnant for a change. Waiting for the test results. Waiting for that prodigal to hopefully come around. Waiting hurts. Now we know that God has a purpose when he makes us wait. Even though we we don't always see it, understand it, we, we know that he wants to forge us into the likeness of his son and sometimes part of the pressure of the forge he uses is waiting. We also know we have an enemy that would love to ruin us during the wait. Who wants us to wait on something we had not to be waiting on, pursue something rather than wait for what we should want to be waiting on. He, he wants to tempt us to doubt God's, either God's goodness or his sovereignty. You know, a lot can be told about the maturity of a Christian by how he or she waits. A couple of weeks ago, we started a section in the book of James, this book that's about spiritual maturity, growing in this faith. We started a section that's about competing worldviews. Um, Christianity has a worldview, and it's different from the worldview that, we, that comes sort of downloaded with us when we are born. James has been talking about the, the natural worldview of mankind. First, he talked to us about how it is self-focused, it's self-reliant. The natural, normal worldview of a person is, I see my life as like it's a movie and I'm the main character. And then I decide how I want to feel, and then I decide what is it that will make me feel like I want to feel. That's what I pursue, that's what I chase. The biblical worldview is very God-reliant. He is what I want and need. Then James last week started talking to us about money because that is one of the the most common ways we pursue what we think will make us feel like we want to feel by what we can have, what we can gain financially. Well, today, James is going to talk to us about waiting. We're going to read a a little five-verse passage that mentions either patience or endurance five times. It's pretty obvious what this one is about. It's about waiting. But a biblical worldview tells us we are waiting on something different than the rest of the world is waiting on. This 
passage asks us this question. What are you waiting for? It's a good question. And I hope you'll consider it while we study this morning. Let's read our passage, James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. And they read this way. Therefore, be patient, brethren or brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain or grumble, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and he's merciful. There's our passage. We start in in verse 7 which I think is the verse that asks us this question. What are you waiting for? Our lives, as the Lord promised they would be, our lives are filled with discomfort, trial, pain. And because that's true, it's very often that we... we, We find the biggest longings of our heart waiting for things different than what the Bible teaches us we ought to be waiting on. Let's just do this exercise for one second. I want you to think of something that has caused you frustration, pain, or discomfort in the last month. You got something? Now, if you're honest... What is it you've been waiting for to make that situation feel like you wish it felt? The most natural thing in the world is to wait for something different than we ought to be waiting for. Ultimately, What, what, am I, what am I chasing? What am I pursuing? What am I doing to try to fix, to, to make myself feel better in this painful situation? What is it that I'm longing for that I think will be the solution that will fix what's wrong? Because James says, be patient, brothers and sisters, until your spouse finally gets it. Oh, wait a minute. That's not what he says. He says, be patient, brothers and sisters, until your boss stops being such a jerk. No. Be patient, brothers and sisters, until you make the starting lineup. Be patient, brothers and sisters, until your financial situation turns around. Until you finally meet someone. Until whatever. No. James says, be patient, brothers and sisters, 
until the Lord's return, until the coming of the Lord. This is not just here. This is what the Bible calls our real hope, our blessed hope, our only hope. In writing about this same idea, the Apostle Paul, to a, to a pastor named Titus, he said this, Titus 2, beginning in verse 11, For the grace of God has already appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That's the, the, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Our blessed hope is when he returns or when we go to be with him. Our real hope, the thing that is going to fix what's wrong, what's wrong right now in your life and in my life, the thing that's going to fix that and make it better is exactly nothing in this world. Our blessed hope, our real hope, and our only hope is in the next. And and if you think about this one way, this could be a discouraging message. You, You could be sitting there saying, wait a second, Matt. Are you telling me that thing you asked me to think about that hurts so much might not get better in this life. Yeah. But in some ways, it's even worse. Because not only might that thing not get better, even if it does, it's only going to get replaced by something else later. But this is not a discouraging message. This is an encouraging message. Because this verse, James 5, 7, has one of my favorite words, my favorite single words in the whole Bible. Do you know what it is? This word right here, until. Do you know what that word means? Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. That means there is something coming which will make it to where we don't have to be patient ever again. We don't have to endure any more because there is something coming. There is someone coming. There is a king and a savior and a fixer and a curse reverser and a serpent crusher coming who's going to dry every tear, who's going to fix every problem, so that we're not stuck down here saying, oh, just wait until uh, the next election and our government's in the hands of the good guys again. You know how long that's going to last? Two weeks. That's, that's the thing with our human hopes when we put our hopes in something down here. One of two things happens. Either we never get 
that thing we're hoping we think it's going to make us all better. Either we never get it or we do and it doesn't work. It doesn't hold our joy. It lets us down or the feeling wears off and there's a new problem tomorrow. That's why, therefore, Christians, be patient until the coming of the Lord. That's what we're waiting on. Wait for what will work. James tells us to wait like the farmer. Now, folks around here, we know a lot of farmers. And they're not all bastions of patience now, are they? <laughs> Don't look around. They're self-conscious enough right now just hearing me talk about it. What James is saying is there does come a point where the only thing a farmer can do is wait, right? You can poke the corn in the ground, but you can't make it sprout. You wait, right? You wait for it to start raining. You wait for it to stop raining. You wait for the crop to grow, to mature. You wait to see if it's going to hail. You wait for it to dry out. But, but why does the farmer wait? Because what the harvest, the crop, is precious. I wait because at some level it's all I can do, but there's something worth waiting for. Folks, what we are waiting for is worth it. It's precious. It'll deliver. Now, while we wait for, either, for our eternal life, while we wait for to be with the Lord, we're not lazy. We're not passive. It's not that we don't do anything to, to make changes, to, to improve, to grow. Of course not. This book's about growth. But what we are waiting for, what we're ultimately waiting for, will shape us while we wait. It shapes how we wait When he is what we're waiting on. That's why James says next what he says next. In verse 8, James gives us two commands. There's two commands in verse 8. You, you too. Command one, be patient. Command two, strengthen your hearts. Be patient. Strengthen your heart. I want you to notice something. And I may be belaboring a point here, but it's an important one. I want you to notice what James does not teach about our patience and about our waiting. James does not teach, wait for the circumstances to change. When your circumstances change, that's what makes your heart feel better. James teaches, be patient, wait for the right thing, and strengthen your heart while you wait. For the right thing, which means you strengthen your heart when the circumstances don't change. We patiently wait for the Lord, the right thing, and then He, you strengthen your heart to wait well. Now, how do we do that? I probably should preach a whole sermon just on just on that but I'll just do one slide instead I want to give you some 
some ideas about what it means. Because that's the command. Wait for the right thing. And strengthen your heart while you wait. How do you do that? First, again, at the, at the risk of being redundant, you've got to make sure you're waiting on the right thing. Be patient for what? He's already told us. For the return of the Lord. For when we are with the Lord. We ha- I have to constantly be reminding my heart what it is my heart actually is waiting for. And I got news for you. I know what your heart is longing for. It's Jesus. Even if you don't know it. Because what you long for is to feel accepted, to feel loved, to feel safe, to feel secure, to feel valued, to feel whatever it is underneath all your longings. They are all longings for God. And the only thing that's going to fix those longings is when you are with Him. So if you want to strengthen your heart, you've got to be able to, you've got to tell your heart what it's waiting on. So that when something I do want to change and want to fix and I want to be better doesn't change. It doesn't, it even gets worse. I can tell my heart, that's not what I'm waiting on. I'm waiting on the right thing and I'm strengthening my heart to endure that thing. Strengthen my heart by making sure it's waiting on the right thing. Then, I strengthen my heart by reminding my heart that the one I am waiting on is in control right now. I am waiting on you, Lord. And you are in control of what goes on down here right now. You, you, are, you have led me to this. You will lead me through this. Right? This is not the end in and of itself. You are the end. Third, in a related note, I strengthen my heart by reminding it, the one who is in control is with me while I wait on him. He knows me, he sees me, he holds me, he cares about me, he loves me. He has not abandoned me nor forsaken me. Fourth, I remind my heart to strengthen it. That waiting in obedience is my goal down here. Waiting in obedience is my goal down here. Waiting on the Lord always includes behaving like He would want me to behave. And here's where, here's how number one affects number four. When I'm not waiting on the right thing, when I am waiting on the right thing, what I'm waiting on to fix everything is you. When my circumstances don't go the way my heart really would like for them to go, if I'm waiting on him, he will change me when those things don't go the way I want them to go. Like, that's what Christian maturity looks like in the wait. When I get my heart set on this other thing that I think that's what needs to change for me to feel the way I want to feel, I very easily will do things to pursue that that he hates. Because what I'm actually waiting on is that thing to change. And if I can manipulate people, things, if I can say things that aren't true, do things that are kind of shady, whatever it is, that's what I'm waiting on. That sort of becomes like my God and my pursuit. You know, 
Christianity, the purpose of this thing we're trying to do down here, is not figure out how to do what God wants so he will give me what I want. The purpose of Christianity is not to figure out how to behave, how to pray, how to believe, how to do whatever else, so he will give me what I want in my circumstances down here. That's not what this is about. This thing is about him changing me when I don't get what I want. It's so important to understand, and I got to tell you, there's a whole lot of people that call themselves preachers and pastors and bishops and all this stuff that teach a version of Christianity that disagrees with what I just told you. And it's bunk. This is why at times I warn you away from people like, I'm going to mention them by name, write them down. Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, Paula White, Kenneth Copeland, T.D. Jakes, Creflo Dollar, and I'm sure I'm leaving a bunch of them out but they are going to teach you how you can use your faith to get what you want right down here. And I will tell you, James disagrees and you got to decide who you believe. And if you think you might not be susceptible to any of those teachers, stay steadfast. Because a year from now, Some of the ones I just read are spiritual advisors to the one many of us will vote for in November next year. And you will see them with President Trump should he be elected. They'll be just as much a false teacher then as they are right now. Finally, I strengthen my heart by reminding my heart that the coming of the Lord is near. James just said that. He said the coming of the Lord is near. It's a few times the last few weeks we've heard this idea. Now, the coming of the Lord is near, but not because we know how many days there are left. Jesus, during his earthly life, he said this, about that day and about that hour, no one knows, not the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. No one knows how many days we have left. I will tell you, we can't even look around at all the stuff that's going on in the world and and understand that we're really, really close. All we can understand is we're closer now than we were two weeks ago. That's all we know. I don't have any idea how close we are getting. If the angels don't know, nobody else knows either. If at least while he was on earth, Jesus didn't know, nobody else knows either. So that this, the Lord is near thing though is true, because we have an eternal perspective of time as Christians. You remember when you were a little kid and you were ready to go home and you were with your mom somewhere, maybe at church, maybe at a store, at some event somewhere and you were ready to go and you were tugging on her and your mom said, this is just gonna take five minutes, right? And your eyes rolled almost out of your head because you knew that five minutes was going to feel like in an eternity. You also knew she was probably lying. It was more like 10 or 15. We all know that, right? But as an adult, then you tell your kids the same thing because as an adult, you know five minutes is nothing. I've been alive 50 years now. Five minutes is nothing. Five minutes is a lot when you're only four. 
This is why the, the time period between your fifth birthday and sixth birthday seemed a lot longer than the time period between your 48th and your 49th birthday. Because a percentage-wise of your life, it, it's a lot, it was a lot bigger back then. We have an eternal perspective of the nearness of the Lord. If I live to be, by anyone's estimation, super old, I got 50 years left. Some people hear hear 50 years and think, that is a long time. There are some of the rest of you who hear 50 years and go, oh man, I remember remember the last 50 years ago, that doesn't seem like that long, right? Listen, 10 million years from now in eternity, 50 years is going to be a laughably short amount of time. That's how near the Lord is. He's right there. It's so close. Make sure you're waiting on the right thing. But that seems like so far in the future. No, it's not. It's not. We're eternal. Strengthen your heart while you wait for the right thing. Now, verse 9 Verse 9 seems like it doesn't fit in this passage because all of a sudden James warns us about not grumbling or complaining against other people. How does that fit in a passage that's about waiting for the Lord? Here's how it fits. Verse 9 is about this. Grumbling ain't waiting. This passage is about patience and endurance, right? Guess what it looks like and guess what it sounds like when my patience goes away and my endurance breaks down. You know what it sounds like and looks like? Grumbling. However your Bible translates this, I like this word grumbling because it's the one we, uh, if we had a Greek Bible, a Greek Old Testament like James's day, this is the word for what the Israelites did when they were in slavery in Egypt. They grumbled against the Egyptians. God saved them through the exodus, brought them out into the wilderness. Then what did they start doing? Grumbling against God. Why? Because they weren't waiting on the right thing. They were waiting on the fixes of their circumstances. And when their patience wore out, they grumbled. That's what happens. That's what grumbling is. When my circumstances won't change and I'm not and I'm waiting for them to change I will fixate on what causes what I think causes my bad circumstances and I will grumble and complain and blame that thing for the way I feel and it's a symptom that I'm not waiting ultimately for the right thing and I fall into this all the time it's a symptom when I, am, when I am, again, fixated on this problem in my life, that's when I'll be tempted to take matters into my own hands, which exactly what it sounds like, taking them out of his. I will start to do things he would tell me never to do, but it will be very easy to justify because I have to, because this is what I'm waiting on. I'm waiting on something I hadn't ought to be waiting on. Ultimately, The second half of this verse 
James returns to a theme he talked about in the previous chapter, in chapter 4. He says, don't, when, you're, when your patience breaks down, you start grumbling against one another. Don't do that. Why? It's going to affect your judgment when you stand before the Lord. Man, here's a sobering thought. When I stand before the Lord at his judgment seat, I'm going to be judged for all of my grumbling. That's what it says. In chapter 4, when we talked about this, remember, we tend to do judgment like this. Our, our judgment is based on our righteousness, our innocence, the, which, is, which is judged by the law. But remember, it's a pane of glass, right? It's not a passing grade or a failing grade. Just like a window. A window is either broken or it's not broken. James said, whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point has broken all of it. Why? Because it's like throwing a baseball through a pane of glass. It doesn't matter that there's one part where there's not very many cracks. The window's broken. We tend to do judgment this way. You and I are in conflict. I tend to focus on this one section of glass, of my glass that doesn't have much in the way of cracks. I try to find the similar corresponding area in your pain, and it has cracks. Therefore, I get to be the one who runs the ship here and punches down at you, because after all, look how much better my glass looks. But don't zoom out, because my glass is broken too. Don't grumble. Don't be the glass inspector. Or that's how Jesus is going to judge you at your judgment. Jesus will say, okay, let's do that. Let's compare my glass to your glass and see how you do. Oh, no, thank you. I'd rather have a more gracious judgment. And then my favorite part of this verse. This is such an effective metaphor. Remember this. He says the judge is standing at the door. You ever been... Ever been at a trial, not on trial? I don't want to know that. Have you ever been at a trial? You ever been in a courtroom? There's this, right before the trial starts, there's this anticipation. Everything's quiet because everyone knows what's going to start the trial. That door back there is going to open. The judge is going to walk through. What's everyone going to do? Everybody's going to stand up and be very respectful, right? Now, you know what almost never happens? I mean, it happens sometimes. We've seen the videos, but almost never happens. Let's say this is a, say this is a civil trial, a lawsuit, okay? And um, just because they're close here, Joey and John are suing each other, okay? And because they're suing each other, they really don't like each other very much. And they both got all kinds of complaints about what a jerk the other one is, right? But they're sitting in court, they would sit there quietly and respectfully because, let's say if Joey decided right before, during that time period, right before the judge walked in, he's going to stand up and give it to John and tell John everything John's done is wrong, what a jerk he is and how wrong he is and all that stuff. And then that judge opens the door, what's going to happen? You know what's going to happen? The judge is going to come out and come down on Joey and he can charge him with what we call contempt of court. You know what that means? The judge would basically say to Joey, listen, this, the problem here is not that you have contempt for John. You knew I could walk through that door at any time. 
And you knew that ain't how you behave in my courtroom. You don't have contempt for John. You have contempt for me and this court. You know what James just told us? That's what our grumbling is. The judge is right at the door. And I don't trust that he will make things work out justly, correctly. I have to take matters into my own hands to get some, some changes made around here. And I never really thought that the contempt I have is for, for the judge. Grumbling isn't waiting. What are you waiting on? And how are you waiting? James gives us an example or some examples to look at at the end of the passage, the last two verses. Verses 10 and 11 where he holds up the prophets and Job as examples of waiting well. Now, I don't really think that what James is saying here is, get your Old Testament out, look at Jeremiah, look at Job, look at Ezekiel, and wait exactly the way those men always waited. Because if you read their stories, you know what you'll find? They waited imperfectly also. I mentioned Job earlier. Job demanded explanations from God. Don't be like that. <laughs> Job called God unjust, unfair. Don't be like that. But here's why they are helpful examples, because we know the end of their stories. And we, we know now about the end, what they didn't know while they were going through it. And here's what that does for me and for you when we look at their stories. We, we can then understand, man, there's no way Job could know all that was going on in, in the heavenly throne room. He could never know what God was using him to do for God's glory. Listen, you and I have a story too. God's doing the same thing with us. When we get to the end of our story, we will look back and we will go, oh man, where I broke down in my patience and endurance, I shouldn't have because God was working all that out for my good because I love him. Like it was true of the prophets, it's going to be true of you and me also. And my favorite part of these last two verses is this line right here. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. We consider, we speak well of others, we respect others, we call other people blessed, the people who suffer well. Now that's, I hope that's true. We should check to make sure that's true about you. Do you really consider blessed people, people who have suffered well, or do you only consider blessed people, people who have more of what you wish you had more of? You know, Jesus said blessed people were, he said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you falsely on account of me. 
When that happens, rejoice and be glad. Why? Because you're waiting on the right thing. They persecuted the prophets the same way. But, but this is true, isn't it? We could go around the room and, and, and we could think of examples. We're in the room with some of them. Give me an example of somebody who suffered well, who endured a lot. They remained others focused. You could still see they had this buoyant joy in spite of what was going on so painful in their lives. Their life was not just constant grumbling, complaining, fighting. Don't you think highly of someone who has suffered like that? Don't you? Isn't it weird that our own experience tells us that's who is respected? But then when it's my turn to suffer, I want to spend my time going around telling everybody how bad I've got it. So even when my own experience tells me the people who are respected and blessed are the people who suffer well. What are you waiting on? Like, really? And then how do you look while you wait? That's what this is about. I want to encourage you, oh Christian, to fix your heart on the right thing. Make sure you are waiting for the thing that will actually fix what's wrong. It's exactly nothing down here. But he's coming. He's coming. And he's going to fix everything perfectly fix your heart and your eyes and your mind right there that's what you're waiting on then strengthen your heart to resolve to wait well i fixed my heart that's what i'm waiting for now i'm going to wait in ways he approves of loves blesses to do that, I've got to see my grumbling as a, as a failure of that. And then be encouraged because you will not have to wait long. Ten million years from now, we will know how true these words are. We didn't have long. You can do this, oh Christian. You're on the last lap. But Pastor Matt, it's so long. It's been so long. It's so hard. I know. I know. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. I'm not saying it's not lousy. I'm just telling you, wait for the right thing. Wait for the right one. And wait in the ways he approves. And I promise you it will be worth it when you're with him. Let's pray. Our Father, we, uh, we sit here this morning as people who don't always wait so good. And if that's a mark of our spiritual maturity, well, then we got more work to do. So, Father, help us to fix our eyes on the one worth waiting for. God, where we have pursued other things, other fixes, help us understand either it won't change or it will and it won't do for us what we hope. Help us to wait for the one that will work and the sureness of our hope. Help that to shape us while we wait into the likeness of your son that you might be glorified in us 
and that we might have joy while we wait on our hope. In the name of our blessed hope, the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Stand up. We'll finish our time this morning.